If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3. If you're not sure where Zephaniah is, the best way to get there is probably go to the first book of the New Testament. Head to Matthew and then start going left and you'll be in those minor prophets and you'll find maybe some books like Nahum and then Habakkuk and then Zephaniah and Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And you want to be in Zephaniah and the final chapter of Zephaniah chapter 3. On December 19th, 1843, Charles Dickens published his story about Ebenezer Scrooge, a stingy old miser who was visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve. The full title of that book is this, A Christmas Carol in Prose Being a Ghost Story of Christmas. But we don't often associate ghost stories and Christmas, uh, nor do we usually tell scary stories at this time of year, but this seems to have been a common feature uh, in Victorian England around Christmas time. And I can remember being quite scared, especially whenever the ghost of Christmas yet to come would show up on the stage or on the screen when I was watching different adaptations of A Christmas Carol. And, and while there are no ghosts in the accounts of the first Christmas that we find in Matthew and Luke, what we do find is fear. And the source of that fear in Luke's gospel is not ghosts, it is angels. I'm not sure what comes into your mind when, when you think about an angel, but popular culture has significantly softened our understanding of these messengers from God. To be scared of an angel seems a little bit absurd, especially if you're picturing a, a small child with wings. Uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones refers to angels as warriors of light, likely in an effort to help us reconsider our image of these heavenly beings. And that title is probably a little bit more accurate than some others. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, we are told that fear fell upon Zechariah, only to have the angel say what is probably one of the most common commands in Scripture, do not be afraid. And why was he supposed to not be afraid? Because the angel says in verse 13, your prayer has been heard. The next person that's frightened by an angel in Luke's gospel was Mary. And Gabriel said to her in Luke 1.30, don't be afraid, Mary. Why? For you have found favor with God. She didn't need to be afraid because God did not disapprove of Mary, but was pleased with her. The angel had not come to announce judgment, but to announce God's blessing. Now, it could be that, that angels instill fear in we humans, in part because of who they are, but also because of who we are. If we're honest with ourselves, we know our weakness and we know our sin. Deep down, we know that we don't deserve to have God hear our prayers or to show us favor. So when a messenger of God arrives, we assume it's bad news. It's like if an IRS agent knocks on your door or you get a phone call at 3 a.m. You assume the news is bad. And so these angels, knowing the human heart in some way, immediately tell those they meet that the news is not bad and they don't need to be afraid. This is again the case in the third angelic visit described by Luke after 
relating how Mary and Joseph ended up in the town of Bethlehem and the fact that Jesus was born there in great humility. We read in Luke 2, 8 through 14. We already read these verses, but why not hear them again? It says there, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So did you notice verse 10? The angel says, fear not. And why should they not be afraid? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, it could be that the shepherds that seen the angel and the glory of God expected the angel to say, be afraid, for behold, I bring you bad news of great sadness that's going to be for you guys in particular. But instead, this warrior of light was bringing good news of great joy for all people. News that a Savior and Messiah had been born that very day in the town right next to them. That God had come not to destroy humanity, but to rescue them. As we've seen in, in recent weeks, the good news of great joy for all people was something that had been promised by the prophets. And so today I want us to go back to the prophets to find a little bit more information regarding why this good news should bring us great joy. In a prophecy about the coming Messiah in Zephaniah 3, we find a message similar to the one that was announced by the angels, and it's this. Do not fear. Rejoice at what God has done. Do not fear. If you're writing it down, you could put a period there or a semicolon, whatever you like. <laughs> Do not fear. Rejoice at what God has done. Sometimes joy can be a little bit hard to come by, even at Christmas. In fact, I think maybe the unique expectation of joy can make it even harder to find this time of year. Maybe at times we're just not sure how to be joyful. Maybe we find joy in lesser things. Or, or we're pulled out of our joy by the circumstances of life. We get happy about something and then something that draws us out of that. And so this afternoon I want to invite you into some of the joy of Christmas and of the arrival of Jesus to rescue his people. And this joy could look different for all of us. There's no one right way to express joy. But however we express it, the good news announced at Christmas says to us, don't be afraid, do not fear, rejoice at what God has done. Let's hear these ancient words of the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 9. God's word says to us, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a, to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame. 
because the deeds by which you rebelled by which you have rebelled against me for then i will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain but i will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the lord those who are left in israel they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Do not fear. Rejoice at what God has done. Now, before we get to the place of rejoicing and singing, as Zephaniah calls us to, we need to recognize first that apart from Christ, there is reason to fear. It's the first thing I want us to think about. Apart from Christ, there is real reason to fear. If you look at verse one of this book, you'll find that, that Zephaniah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah during the days of King Josiah. Now, King Josiah was, was one of the best kings of Judah, and he led the people back to a pure worship of God. However, the sins of the nation had been great. And Zephaniah makes it clear that the day of the, of the Lord's judgment is definitely coming on Judah. So he opens his prophecy in, in Zephaniah 1-2 with these chilling words. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And the book continues in that ominous tone. In, in chapter one, the focus of God's judgment is on Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, describing an army that is coming to destroy them, which we know was Babylon. And then in chapter two, after a brief call for the faithful remnant that was still in Israel to repent in the hopes of, of mercy, God's judgment moves to all the nations surrounding Judah, who would also be judged by Babylon. Surprisingly, Judah is also mentioned in this section, lumped together with all the nations who would not trust or draw near to God. And everything comes to a climax in the words of Zephaniah 3, verse 8, the verse just before our passage. It says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be 
consumed. As the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And while we do not fear the Babylonian army coming against us, we are sinners all, and the rebellion of our hearts means that the fear before God makes perfect sense. Only a fool would not fall at his feet as though dead when confronted by God's perfect holiness and justice. It's our pride that would push back on these pronouncements of judgment as too harsh or would assume that, that we can or, or, or we are good enough to stand in the light of God's holiness. So I have no ghost story for you this Christmas, but the darkness and the silence of the world before the advent of Jesus tells us that apart from Christ, there is reason to fear. Without his arrival, we all will be consumed by the fire of God's justice. So, why would I bring this all up on a Sunday that's meant to draw us into joy? <laughs> because if we're ever going to see the joy of Jesus' advent and his incarnation, we have to set it against the night of his just judgment for sin. In A Christmas Carol, uh, the final act of the ghost of Christmas yet to come is to show Scrooge that should he not change his ways, his death would be mourned by no one and it would come much sooner than he ever expected. And it's this reality that finally breaks his pride. I think like Scrooge, we kneel before the prospect of our own tombstone and face the reality that if we are to stand before God on our own, on Judgment Day, we are doomed. Not simply to death in this life, but to eternal death. It's there in the snow before his own grave that Scrooge cries out, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Why show me this if I am past all hope? And so too then, Zephaniah didn't write of judgment alone. He closes his prophecy with hope. We start to see that the joy of the gospel can be found in the fact that our God does not announce judgment and say that there is no hope of escaping his wrath. The judgment for sin is certain, but hope of rescue and joy is held out for everyone who will listen which means I don't have to stand here today and simply say that apart from Christ, we have reason to fear. You know what else I can say? In Christ, there is reason to rejoice. Let's think about that. In Christ, there is reason to rejoice. Again, thinking back to those shepherds on the hillside the, the night of Jesus' birth, the appearance of the angels could have represented the army of the Lord coming to bring justice on the earth through judgment. But the angel instead says to them, don't be afraid. And here at the end of, of Zephaniah, after the real true warnings of, of judgment, hope is held out. In the midst of judgment, Zephaniah goes as far as to say, there's not just hope, there's reason for rejoicing. The way we're saying it today is, in Christ, there is reason to rejoice. Now, of course, Zephaniah was speaking to the people of Judah long before the arrival of Jesus, but the hope for rejoicing that, that he holds out is grounded in the promise of who the Messiah would be and what he would make possible. He is calling the remnant of faithful ones in Jerusalem to trust 
that the darkness will not endure, and that there is hope for deliverance. If you are in Christ today, then we know the promises Zephaniah was pointing forward to. We know them because, because they are fulfilled in Jesus, and they will be fully realized at his return. Therefore, we are able to rejoice. So let me offer you three reasons to rejoice this Christmas, taken from Zephaniah and realized in Jesus. These are the reasons, because our hearts have been made new, because our sin and our enemies have been taken away, and because our God rejoices over us. So first, in Christ, there is reason to rejoice because first, our hearts have been made new. Our hearts have been made new. Uh, the, the way the Bible speaks about the transformation that we need helps us to see that in the darkness of our sin, we're not like a, a chipped bowl. We're a completely shattered one. But we don't need to be put back together. We actually need to be made completely new. We don't, we don't need to try harder. We need to be born again. We're not just a little sick. We're dead, and we need resurrected. This was true for God's people, the Israelites, as well as all the nations around them. And we get a flavor for the brokenness of all people in verses 9 through 13. But what we find is that, that God, through the Messiah, was going to actually transform people from the way that they were into a completely different and new people. If you look starting in verse 9, we see that in verse 9, those with impure speech are going to be transformed so that their speech is now pure. In verse 10, those who were far away, possibly worshiping false idols, would be brought back to the worship of God. Those who had rebelled and put themselves to shame would have their shame removed, and those who were proud and haughty would be humbled. Verse 11 says that the people left in God's land would be humble and lowly. They, they would be those who sought refuge in the Lord. And verse 13 says that they would no longer do injustice or speak lies. And all of that transformation meant that according to the last part of verse 13, they could lie down and rest like sheep who have no fear of a wolf coming to devour them. Now let me say all that just a little bit different. Zephaniah says that a people of impure speech, who worshiped false idols, who rebelled against God in shameful ways, who were proud and unjust and liars, would become people of pure speech, who worshiped the Lord alone, walking in ways that were pleasing to him, humbly seeking refuge in God, acting justly, and speaking the truth. How is that even possible? How can that massive of a trans transformation happen? Have you ever met someone and thought, there's no hope for them to ever change? <laughs> Have you ever thought that about yourself? There's no hope for me to ever change. Well, the hope of the new covenant is that the worst of sinners, those who are, are far from God and want nothing to do with him, in other words, all of us, we can be transformed. And Jeremiah says it happens because we're given a brand new heart. That's how we're transformed. A heart that, that longs to and is able to follow God's good ways. A heart that draws us out 
of, of the shameful, prideful, self-sufficient ways that we are drawn to by our own flesh and by the world. And the coming of Jesus means that we can be given new hearts and, and that Jesus has given us his spirit so that we can walk in ways that please him. Christian, you have been and you are being transformed. You can say no to sin and you can say yes to God. You can walk in the good works that God has laid out for you. By God's grace, you are not who you once were. And one day when Christ comes again, we will never again walk in sinful and prideful ways. Our hearts have been made new and one day every part of us and every part of this world will be made new as well. And that's a good reason to rejoice. And it's, it's only possible because Christ has come to make us brand new people. The second reason that in Christ there is reason to rejoice is that our sin and our enemies have been taken away. Something to rejoice about, that our sin and our enemies have been taken away. Now, in some ways, this is actually the other side of the coin of what we've just talked about. In fact, we usually talk about the other side, we, we talk about this side first. We say that our sins have been taken away, and then we talk about how we have been made new creations in Christ Jesus who can do what he's called us to do. But either way, they, they inform one another. This idea of our enemies being taken away is hinted at there in, that, in verse 13 with that imagery of a flock of sheep grazing without fear. And in that picture, we come back to this idea of, of fear again. And the source of our fear here is our own sin. And, and the enemies of our souls and of our lives that can come against us because of our sin. And a large part of that fear is that God is going to judge us because of our sins. But look again at, at verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. If you have or if you, in coming days, turn on a World Cup soccer game, you will see what it looks like to sing aloud, to shout, to rejoice, and to exult with all your heart, as long as your team is winning, I guess. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that to say, oh, it's so silly to get excited about those things. That's not my point. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that we need to somehow create that kind of excitement uh, as we gather on Sundays. That would be a big stretch, especially for Grace Fellowship Church, wouldn't it? But we should acknowledge this. We should acknowledge that it is, it's a little strange. It's a little strange how difficult it can be for us to rejoice and to exalt at the fact that Jesus humbled himself to be born and to live and to die for us so that all of the judgment against our sin is gone. We, we struggle to shout at the truth that every enemy, every enemy, including death, is cleared away, and it cannot harm us ever again because of what Christ has done. We struggle to rejoice that God is in our midst, and we never have to fear evil again. But, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our reality 
both now and in the future, and that's definitely something to sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exalt with all our hearts over. Sometimes it's hard to exalt because, well, sometimes it's just hard for some of us to exalt. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to exalt, as we've said, because we've not spent enough time realizing that apart from Christ, we have so much to be afraid of. We can begin to think that we somehow deserve for God to save us, or we get resentful even over the, the thought that he would not. But you know who often doesn't feel that way? The people described in verses 18 through 20. There we find those who mourn. We find the lame and the outcast and the shame-filled. Verses 9 and 10, as well as these verses here, also indicate that the nations, other than the Jewish people, people who had been excluded from Israel, are now being welcomed into God's presence and his protection. And these groups and individuals, they knew, they knew something, that they had no business being welcomed by God. And so they were thrilled when they finally were. At Christmas, we remember that Jesus himself was an outcast. His mother was held in suspicion, and she and Joseph seemed to have been barred in some way, whether by an innkeeper or by their family from decent accommodations in Bethlehem. And then it's the outcasts who are invited to celebrate Jesus' birth. It's the shepherds. The ones that, that nobody wanted around, they were the ones that are welcomed in to the presence of God on earth. And so I wonder maybe to help us tap into this joy of Christmas, I wonder if we could strive to see ourselves as the shepherds, as, as the poor and as the lame and as the outcast and as the shameful because that's who we are apart from God's grace if we could just see ourselves as those we would not expect God to welcome in. And yet God in Christ invites us into his presence. He he even brings his presence to us in the incarnation. Verse 20 says that he gathers us together, replaces our shame with renown, and restores our fortunes. One of our Advent poems from a number of years past focused on the shepherds and closed with this thought related to the candles that we, that we light. Let the sweet scent of these candles remind us how bad we stink. <laughs> Just like those poor shepherds, no matter how much we think, we deserve to be invited to meet Christ at the stable. Instead, it's only grace that calls and enables filthy sinners like us to have heavenly insight, break into the darkness of our faithless night. It could be that seeing what we deserve, which is just death and judgment and all of our enemies against us, if we could see that, that then maybe we can be filled with singing and shouting and rejoicing that in Jesus we get the exact opposite. In Christ we have reason to rejoice because our hearts have been made new, because our sins and our enemies have been taken away, and finally, because our God rejoices over us. We have reason to rejoice because our God rejoices over us. If you're turning to read Zephaniah 3, you're probably turning there to read verses 16 and 17. And so let's read them again. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, we could draw so much from these verses, but let's just think about this. One reason we are able to rejoice is that God rejoices and sings over us. Just pause and maybe consider the relationships throughout your life in which someone rejoices or has rejoiced over you. Think of the people who have loved you deeply, whether, and, and whether literally or figuratively, they have sung over you. It could be a, a parent, it could be a grandparent, it could be a spouse, it could be a, a close friend, but there are people who delight in us. And they are gifts from God that help us to see how he himself feels about who we are. Maybe it's hard for you to think about people who have exalted and and sing over you, but who are the people that you exalt and sing over? That that you you love in that deep way. And to tap into that feeling is to realize just in part how God feels about we who are his children. There's not many people that you sing over. I don't know about you, but there's just a select few. But God sings over all of his children. Zephaniah tells us that for those who are in Christ, God himself rejoices and sings over us. He's like a a father who holds his child and sings a song to quiet him or her with his love. He's like that person that cheered for you from the stands every game you had. He's like the person who never fails to send a a note after some accomplishment to say how happy he is at your success. And he's also the one who sends a note for no good reason at all, just to say that he loves you. It's hard to imagine that sense of love that God has for us, that he rejoices and sings over us. I think the only way that we can come close to it, to understanding the love that he has for us and the clearest picture that we have of it is the way that the Father delights in the Son. The way that God the Father, in fact, delights in Jesus helps us understand how God feels about we who are his children. The first servant song of Isaiah, we studied this, well, it's a little bit of a while, maybe two years ago now, I don't know. But Isaiah 42, one through four says this, speaking about the coming Messiah. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Notice there that God rejoices and delights in the servant, not only because of the justice he will bring, but also because of the tender compassion and mercy that he shows to God's children, especially when we are weak. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, remember, he, he's, he's being baptized by John. And in that scene, the heavens open up, which could be a very fearful thing for everyone there. But instead, the voice of God comes, not to announce judgment, but to let everyone know how pleased he is with his son. That's what God wants to announce in that moment. 
that the way Jesus was humbling and submitting to the plan that they had already together set in motion was a delight to the Father. And because God delights in Jesus, because God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, God delights in and sings over us. Christian, if you are in Christ, God delights in and sings over you. Which means we definitely don't have to be afraid anymore. There's no fear of the person who sings over you. Why would you ever fear a God who rejoices in and sings over you? Like Zechariah, we don't need to fear because God has heard our prayer. He's heard our prayers of repentance and faith and he's welcomed us as his children. Like Mary, we don't need to be afraid because in Christ, God is well pleased with us. Like the shepherds, we don't need to fear because Jesus has brought us good news of great joy for all people, outcasts included. Let's be clear, if you are apart from Jesus, if you have never turned from sin and trusted in Christ, there is reason to fear. But if you are in Christ, and the only way, the way to get into Christ is simply through repentance and faith. And if you are in Christ, there is reason to rejoice. Why? Because our hearts have been made new, because our sins and all of our enemies have been taken away, and because the God of the universe is a Father who rejoices over and sings over us. That is reason to rejoice now, and it means that we will have reason to rejoice for all time. So, let's sing. Let's sing this song about joy coming to the whole world and find in it reasons to rejoice now, but also, also reasons to rejoice in the future, knowing that our God is going to come again. And when he comes again, it's not going to be so much to dwell with us, but it's going to be so that he can take us to himself and we can be with him for all eternity. So, as the musicians come, let's stand together and we're going to sing Probably the only song you could close this service with, Joy to the World. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>